Hello there, Alaskans, wherever you are. Welcome to the Must Read Alaska Show. Coming to you from somewhere in Alaska. This is the place where we talk about, you guessed it, Alaska. Where we keep the mainstream media on their toes and where we are standing up for what's right and a world run by leftists. You can find out more by heading over to mustreadalaska.com and also checking out the Must Read Alaska YouTube channel for some really great content. But first, let's get this party started. Well, welcome everybody to the Must Read Alaska show. I'm your host, John Quick, coming to you live from somewhere in Alaska. If you live anywhere near from Valdez to Kenai to Anchorage, you've probably got some significant amount of snow. We've probably got, I don't know, foot and a half, two feet of snow in the last uh, 24 hours plus here on the Kenai Peninsula. And the kids love it. The dogs love it. My cat does not know what to think about it yet, but um, she's still got a full winter to get used to it. These are, we got two brand new cats and these are their, this is their first winter seeing snow. So this will be interesting. And if you've been living in under a rug or in a closet, you don't know that it's election season time and it's election season time. And man, we are so close to being able to, uh, some of us have probably already voted, but being able to be November 8th and have a lot of folks in Alaska vote on November 8th, which is very exciting. And uh, so we're going to talk about something that should matter to every Alaskan in our great state, and that is the Constitutional Convention. Today, I have an awesome guest, none other than the Senate Majority Leader, Shelley Hughes, and she is a force to be reckoned with. She is a powerhouse. I'm pretty sure that she has won all of her elections by something like 70%, which is unheard of. And so welcome to the Must Read Alaska show, Senator Hughes. Yeah, thank you very much. And notice, John, the, the snow is creating lots of great natural light as well. So here we are. It's, it's bright and light. And that's a good... Um, starting place for talking about what's going to be on the ballot to put shine some bright light on what's going to be for us and thank you for having me i want to talk about the constitutional convention because i believe it is um more important actually than my race or any other state legislative race for that matter i really do because i think it's a defining moment for this generation and our children and grandchildren we have an opportunity and it is, as I have dubbed it, a David versus Goliath battle. I have an op-ed actually that's running, I believe, in about six or seven publications as of today statewide. And so folks can certainly read that. And if they Google David versus Goliath, they can uh, <laughs> find it uh, with my name. And um, it will sum up a lot of what we're probably going to talk about today. Well, that's exciting. You know, I think I've had a lot of conversations with folks that, you know, don't even know what the constitutional convention is and that's no fault of their own they got no, they got day jobs and soccer practices and hockey practices and kids in middle school or college and they're running around buying groceries and so tell us why it's on the ballot and what is the constitutional convention for folks that you know maybe if this is their first time ever hearing about it so I can relate to being um, just full on with the family because I had those years too. And that's why people like me want to come to Alaskans to kind of fill them in because we understand. And I'm glad people are focused on their families. 
Um, the question appears on the ballot every 10 years after the census because the framers made it a requirement in the Constitution when they convened in 1955 that every 10 years the question would be asked to the people. And one of the reasons why I am really passionate about it is because uh, two years ago, ranked choice voting passed. Remember that ballot measure? Mm -hmm. And I came out and spoke against it. But I regret now that I didn't invest more time um, getting the word out to people to, so they better understood what was going to be on the ballot. So I have devoted um, pretty much 100% of my time to this effort, even if it means I lose votes in my own Senate race, because I think this is so important for a better Alaska and a better future. And that's not just rhetoric. We can talk about specifically how um, how that can play out. Well, I like that. I think that that speaks volumes because I think any time that an elected official believes uh, passionately enough to be okay with losing some votes, it really means that they believe in what they're talking about. And so I appreciate that you not only are saying that, but you're you're walking the walk. You know, you're doing some opt-eds, you're going on podcasts, speaking in favor of the Constitutional Convention. So why should this be important to the everyday Alaskan? They're going to go to the ballot box. They're going to see, should I vote yes or no? They know that it's, you know, they're listening to this podcast now. It's on the ballot box every 10 years. But why should it be important to the, you know, stay-at-home dad or the hockey mom here in Alaska? Well, the the status quo is kind of so-so, and it's not working as well as how things could work in our state if we took care of a few matters. And it will improve um, the economy. If we have a state constitutional convention, I fully believe, and I can explain why, it will also allow the gridlock legislature to address some really important issues that have nothing to do with the fiscal matters, which is the primary reason why I believe we need to have one, have a constitutional convention. But there are a lot of things that have been shoved aside that are really important to families and to moms and dads. Um, we have not, it took us seven years to get a bill through uh, to allow children, to ensure children and um, we're getting a, a good reading program where the mm -hmm. schools would be held accountable to make sure they had every opportunity to be proficient readers by the end of the third grade. Why did that take seven years, John? Yeah. It took seven years because of the fiscal gridlock in the legislature. We have we are the worst state in the nation for sexual assault. Prosecutors needed a tool to get rapists off the street. Why has sexual assault not been a priority of the legislature? because we've been wrapped around the, the axle on the fiscal matters, the PFD amount for seven years. Why have bills that would address reducing healthcare costs died in committee because of the PFD uh, gridlock? So all those things, whether it's um, our children doing well in school, we need to work, we worked on K through third grade, we need to work on fourth through 12th grade. So whether it's education, cost of healthcare, crime, those are all things that have not been properly addressed. And that's detrimental to Alaska. And then on the economic end, um, the uncertainty has not created a business-friendly environment. And this fiscal uncertainty goes back to the 1990s when um, the idea of the need for a fiscal plan was being discussed. So we're going in the third decade, third decade. And ICER, 
If you haven't heard of ICER, it's the Institute of Social and Economic Research uh, housed at the University of Alaska. They basically have indicated that for every year we haven't had fiscal certainty at the state level, we have lost out on more than a half a billion dollars in private capital investment into our economy. So that means we have missed out on high paying jobs. We have missed out on a strengthened economy. So, um, yes, it's important to um, uh, dads and moms, grandmas and grandpas that we do this, that we have the Constitutional Convention and have an opportunity to address some things the legislature hasn't been willing to address. I think that that's a great point. And, um, you know, oftentimes, uh, you know, I talk to elected officials and they themselves might have some phenomenal ideas, but then convincing the majority of either the House or the Senate is a whole nother ballgame. And when you factor in the permanent fund is always the topic, at least, you know, for the last, gosh, five, six years, it's really hard to get anything else done. And to your point, this provides an opportunity to squash some of those things that have been the Trump cards, for lack of a better word, in the in the room and sucked out all the air. And so I think that, you know, that the folks that are for the Constitutional Convention, all I hear from them is opportunity. Um, I hear positive messages. I hear um, freedom. I hear uh, a, a really a lack of fear in the process from the other side, which we're going to talk about, the folks that are no on the Constitutional Convention. Really, all I hear is fear, fear mongling. Um, outside money coming in, the ads, if people probably heard them, it's pretty much all outside money. And, oh, you don't want to do this. It's going to create a doomsday kind of scenario. Um, mm -hmm. Senator, talk to me a little bit about your, have you, as you've listened to some of these ads, what do you think about them? What are you hearing from folks as they, you know, probably listen to them and then call you? What the heck is this, you know, even mean? Tell me your thoughts on these no on convention ads we're all hearing. Well, first, I want to make a pitch um, 28 days prior to the election. So whatever date that would be four weeks out, I started a countdown series to help alleviate the fears because I was listening to those ads, John, and I thought this is over the top ridiculous. People need to have accurate information. They need to understand the process. They need to understand historically more than 230 state constitutional conventions have been held across our nation, and not one of them, and not one of them did a worm escape a can, John, and not one of them did Pandora's box fly open and chaos ensue, and not one of them was an the economy upended or the state government upended or a whole constitution thrown out and rewritten. So what they are saying is simply not true. And so we've been working hard to help Alaskans understand that the framers put this convention provision in the constitution for a reason. And the reason is now. And the reason I, I'd like to explain, because a lot of people also say, well, you know, there's a provision for the legislature to make these amendments. Why haven't you done it? Why are you gridlocked? Well, I've been reading some scholarly articles about state conventions around the country, and that's why I know they've all um, been conducted successfully and peacefully, and no crazy amendments have made it through. They've all been sane and reasonable. 
Um, but in that in that process, one of the things you learn when you look into it is conventions have been called specifically to the three top reasons have been for reapportionment, finances, and judicial structure and selection. Now that's nationally in the 19th and 20th century. So finances, why, why do the people need to be called for a convention? Why do we need delegates? It boils down to the fact that legislators hesitate restricting their own legislative spending power. And that is what we have seen the last seven years. Economists, budget gurus, the bipartisan fiscal working group, and even Alaskans, it's polled in the high 60% range, understand that getting our fiscal house in order is going to involve two things, settling the PFD matter and getting a reasonable spending cap in the Constitution. So there's wide, broad agreement for that. Why? And there have been multiple proposals, mul multiple constitutional amendment proposals by legislators to do those two things. And yet we cannot get the votes because legislators don't want to restrict their own spending power. They want to be able to do what they want to the budget. They want to, some want to be able to reach into the permanent fund dividend cookie jar mm -hmm. at will. And so we haven't been able to get the votes. We've gotten really close. And at some points, we've gotten a simple majority. So 11 out of 20 in the Senate and 20, uh, 21 out of 40 in the House. But the legislative amendment process involves a two-third. It requires a two-thirds vote. So that means not 11, but 14 in the Senate, not 21, but 27 in the House. And frankly, John, we haven't been able to reach that threshold. But here's the beauty the delegates don't have to have a two-thirds threshold. They only need a simple majority. And guess what? They're not going to hesitate restricting legislative spending power. They're not going to have the same conflict of interest. They're not going to be focused on the annual budget and the annual PFD amount for the year. They're going to have a, be there with a long-term mindset of how do we fix, what's a solution that's going to work and stand up for years to come. I like that. You know, I think that the um, the constitutional convention actually scares the folks that don't want it. You know, it puts it almost puts the fear of God into them because, holy crap, the people of Alaska could actually make a stand here and form a delegation and and rewrite some of these rules that have been driving us crazy for the last two or three decades. And I think that that's very scary for what you know, the everyday person calls the swamp, the, you know, the special interest groups that, that help run and uh, interfere with government in a lot of ways. And I think that, um, that the easiest way for folks to make a difference now is to vote yes on the convention and to have a, the people's voice when it comes to important things in Alaska. And so, um, Senator Hughes, tell me, you know, we've talked a little bit about why this should be important for, you know, the everyday Alaskan, um, why it's on the ballot box to begin with, some of the crazy attack ads that we hear out there. But specifically, why is it important to you? I think that you, you know, your story of getting involved in as an elected official is is just a phenomenal story to begin with. It happened, if I remember correctly, it happens to to deal with a a stoplight in in your section of uh, the the uh, Wasilla and wanting to make a difference in a small way, and 
And so I think that you've kind of been able to keep that mantra throughout your elected official life. And that shows how you <laughs> dominate at 70% of uh, winning 70% every time you are up for re-election, the people seem to trust you. And so why is this important to you specifically? I think that that is very important to talk about because as a, an elected official, as the majority leader, as somebody who conservatives look to, they're going to want to hear, why is this important to you? It is because I've experienced up close and personal, John, what's happened. So I served before uh, Walker, former Governor Walker, vetoed part of the PFD and the courts ruled that legislators don't need to follow the formula that they can just pick the amount for the PFD. So I served prior to that time and I saw how the legislature functioned when they simply followed that formula and focused on the issues of the day and were addressing topics other than the finances, other policy considerations that would be helpful to Alaska. And then I served after the court ruling. And so I have experienced up close and personal the, the total dysfunction. And as I stated earlier, in er how it's bled over into other areas that are detrimental to Alaska because the legislature's not functioning. So because I I care, and those, those, aren't, those aren't words, I, I really care. And I've been spending a ridiculous amount of hours on this. Um, because I care and I think this is the best. And and I will tell you, you know, ranked choice voting, we got fooled. We got fooled. And, and I, you know, however this goes, it's going to be a miracle. It's going to be a miracle if this passes. But I do know had, if I stepped up, I was opposed to the ranked choice voting ballot measure. But if I had stepped up and been more vocal, maybe it wouldn't have passed. You know, it only passed by 1%. So I decided um, a month or so ago that I was going to go whole hog and really focus on that so Alaskans would have the best information and that we would have a chance against the dark money. Uh, we And you know what? This is, I, I want to make this point because a lot of genuine, sincere Alaskans, their concern that dark money would then, if we had a convention, the dark money would filter in and cause bad things to happen. So I, I'd like to address that if that's okay with yeah. you, John. Yeah. So- First of all, if we vote yes and it passes the finish line, we will have said no. We will put up, you know, our our nose to dark money, and we we would say, "Hey, dark money, we're not listening to you." So that would that would put us in a good stead. But I also um, just again, history has shown that extremists are not elected to the convention as delegates because the same voters. All those moms and dads and grandpas and grandpas out there, <clears throat> and small business owners. Second, I need a drink. Yep. <clears throat> they're they're the voters, and they're the ones that elect the legislatures, legislators, and they are will be the ones to elect the delegates. And just like the legislators across the state, more or less uh, reflect the values of Alaskans. The same thing is going to happen with the delegates. So it's not going to be packed full of extremists on one side or the other. It's going to represent Alaskans' values. So history shows us that the extreme stuff doesn't get through. And, you know, outside right now, that outside money is extremely liberal. It's very liberal. Um, the 1630 Foundation has very, trouble, uh, very troubling social agenda, for example. 
and NEA, you know, if, if they're worried about funding, if they're worried, they should look to Florida. Florida has school choice. And you know what, <clears throat> Jonathan, the schools there are absolutely flourishing. The public schools are flourishing because those schools know they have to be accountable to those parents and they're doing an excellent job. And nationally, Florida's way at the top as far as academic performance. So um, NEA shouldn't be worried. It's, it's actually, like I've said, when you do the right thing, the rising tide lifts all boats. And I think the public schools will improve if the delegates choose to fix the part of our constitution, which actually right now is out of sync with US Supreme Court rulings. And actually people don't realize this too. It says no public dollars can go to private institutions, but we're already kind of violating that because money is going to head start, which is private sector. Money is going to students for student loans in in colleges that are private. So um, fixing that is not going to decimate our public schools. It's going to improve, improve them. So what was your question? I like <laughs> I got, that. No, I you mean, answered it. I'm so passionate about this. <laughs> I love it. So let's say, you know, uh, we're on, I don't know, it's probably going to take a couple of weeks to do count every last uh, vote. But let's say we're, you know, mid-November, we have the the final say and the convention enough people vote yes for it we're going to have the convention walk us through what does that practically look like for the next i don't know the time frame doesn't matter so much as the steps but let's say the next year going from we vote and approve the convention to you know something appearing on the ballot a year later for folks to be able to vote on so the if it passes, there will, that, it will become a huge fo focus of the next legislative session because the legislature has a chance to um, set some parameters with the process. The question is, well, we don't know who's going to be elected and if there would be um, the votes to do that kind of thing. If they wouldn't, it falls back on the lieutenant governor to model after the first state convention in in um, territorial law, there were um, there were guidelines and a process put in place as far as the selection of delegates. So it would default to that. But even if the legislature does um, agree on a bill, it will probably more or less update that, which means delegates would be selected by districts, and that would occur on the next regular election. So that'd be twenty twenty four, unless a special election were called. I'd be an advocate for calling a special election because think of what's gonna be on the ballot in 2024, that's gonna be presidential. That is going to be, um, will Senator Dan Sullivan be up in 2024? I'm not sure if he will be. But anyway, just being the fact that it's presidential and, and all the legislative races, I think a focus on um, the delegate selection should be separate. And I think there will be intense vetting, intense interest, because people will know a lot is at stake and they will know this is our our opportunity to take care of matters. So I, I think having a, a separate special election will be the way to go um, in that if the legislature passes a bill, they could um, they could uh, pick the location and the date. If they don't, um, then the lieutenant governor would be would, would do that. I'm going to assume that's going to be our next lieutenant governor will be Nancy Dahlstrom. Um, I believe, and I've actually suggested to uh, who I hope will be our next lieutenant governor, Nancy Dahlstrom, that I think it should be on the road system. 
I think Fairbanks would be fabulous, uh, being that that historically was the first location. And I think that it should occur during the regular legislative session. Our constitution does allow legislators to run, and that's been an argument people have had too. I I actually would like to see that fixed. But I want to tell you how that came to ba- about, John. Before, in, um, before 1955, some of the our territorial legislators lobbied um, our delegation in Congress to change a federal law that did not allow someone to hold dual offices. And that was fixed. And so there were, I can't remember if it was six uh, territorial legislators that served as delegates out of 55. And a few in the other states since that federal law change have also served, but very few have. And actually voters tend not to want legislators to serve because they figure legislators have their chance to fix this. And so um, because of the conflict of interest as well. So very few have served across the country and I, I would not expect um, many to do it this time, particularly if it were held in Fairbanks, let's say between January and April. Yeah. Somewhere so, there. so somebody get so we get the delegation. What does this delegation do? What are they tasked with? Are they sequestered into a room for four months or, you know, what does that kind of look like? And then how do they what does it look like for them to move? Um, something forward to then be on, you know, potentially be on the ballot a year from there. Okay, so the, the delegates would convene, and if a bill doesn't pass, it would be modeled after 1955, which was a 75-day session with some pre- and post-work. It probably would be um, something like that. And, you know, uh, there one of the arguments is the entire constitution will be on the table and will be rewritten. Well, yes, guess what? The entire constitution has been on the table for 63 years for the legislators. So I don't buy that argument. And if you do the math, over 63 years, the legislature has been in session for more than 7,500 days. And we're talking a mere 75 days. So really, it's not going to be rewritten. It's going to be incredibly uh, public process. There will be committees um, on different parts of the Constitution, just uh, and it will be more transparent than any state constitution in uh, U.S. history because of the immediate ability to learn information and follow things. And as I said in on a panel, I think um, that we will know what the delegates are having for breakfast every day because <laughs> you know Alaskans are going to be following things closely. And um, we we will be keeping holding delegates accountable. So it'll be a very public process with committees, public hearings, chance for people to weigh in. And actually, let me back up during the election process. I think that is going to be a very transparent time of vetting. And there will be town halls, community meetings to understand what where, where the delegates stand on different things. And I'll I'll take a moment here to say that I have been I, I, I love Bob Bird as a person. But I do not agree with much of his some of his proposals. So if you hear a proposal and he actually wrote the statement in the official election pamphlet, it's been confusing to people because he's inserting his particular ideas of what he thinks should happen. And guess what? Bob cannot control what the delegates do. I can't force them to do um, what I want in this particular thing. But what I do know is there is a broad agreement 
on getting our fiscal house in order. So I do think those items will come forward. Some of the hot, hot cultural button items, um, I do think that we should be brave enough to have those conversations. I don't know how Alaskans will come down on those, but everybody has to remember the delegates only propose the amendments and then they go to the voters for approval. So I, I think we should have those conversations instead of leaving it to the courts and leaving it to a gridlock legislature. Amen to that. And I would, every day of the week, I would rather have the decision in the, the, the people's hands as opposed to a couple judges' uh, hands. And uh, I think that this is such a unique process that, you know, uh, that it warrants itself for everyday Alaskans to get involved in. And the first step in doing that is, is voting yes. There's, you know, you're not only, you're only going to have an opportunity 10 years from now. So um, this is not something that comes around every, all the time. This is every 10 years, you have a unique opportunity to really go back to the basics and have a different look at something that you may not otherwise have an opportunity to do. Just like Senator Hughes alluded to, it takes two thirds right now, two thirds majority to do anything that the delegation could potentially do with uh, a simple majority. Now, the the fear of, oh, the whole constitution is going to be upended. I'm just not, I don't buy into that either, Senator. I think that you know, by the time you get to the delegation to have a simple majority of agreeing on something and then it going on the ballot and then it has to pass there as well, you're really going to be left with maybe one or two items, three items that that people care about enough to to even land on the ballot. And um, I think it's going to be a lot of work, but anything mm -hmm. worthwhile is is usually going to take a lot of work. And I think that there's a lot of folks in Alaska that are willing to do the work and be a part of the process like you are, um, Senator. Do you have any last minute thoughts here before we head off? Yeah, well, I, you know, um, there's risk in everything and we don't know how things are gonna fold even when we get up in the morning. We don't know how our day is gonna unfold. I don't know when I get in my car and go to the grocery store if I'm gonna make it there alive. But I tell you, every time I've gotten in the car, I've gotten there alive, right? So um, there, there are a few unknowns, but history demonstrates that this can be done safely and peacefully. And I want to say, because the other states, the, the top reasons included finances and, and judicial structure and selection, um, people need to understand. And I, I don't want people to put words in my mouth, but people need to know what Lauren Lehman said in the late 80s when the Democrats controlled the House, the Senate, and the governor of the executive branch that he was told by a democratic house leader point blank that the democrats control control the judiciary we want the judiciary to be of for and by the people just like the other branches and it should be as apolitical as possible so if there is something if the delegates decide to uh reform do some reform as far as select uh, judicial selection like other states have done the goal is not to have a Republican-controlled judiciary. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about having it be up for and by the people and to have balance and to be fair. And right now, it just isn't. And when a House Democrat leader is bragging that the Democrats control the judiciary branch, we have to perk our ears up and listen to that and see that, hey, you know, maybe it's time to fix that. Amen to that. Well, I really appreciate you joining us, Senator Hughes. 
for this, uh, you know, 40 minutes or here or so talking about the Constitutional Convention. And um, I'll put a link into the episode here of the op-ed that, op that you did. So if people want to just kind of read more about it, they can. And uh, I really appreciate your work on this. It's um, uh, hopefully going to be very fruitful. And I'm very hopeful that we're going to see this pass uh, come, you know, mid-November when we get some data back. Um, I really appreciate you joining us. And uh, I'm going to have before, Kelly. Wait, before before you close, Jonathan, yep. John, I want to say one more thing. Just because that op-ed is written, um, hopefully later today, there's going to be a video version for those that prefer listening rather than reading. So stay tuned for that. And what that op-ed does, it basically addresses all the count, it counters everything the other side has says and actually makes the case and ex, kind of explains why this is the time and why it's necessary and safe. Awesome. Well, we'll put that as soon as we get that link, we'll put that in the episode as well. And uh, tomorrow, folks, you can join us at uh, I think nine o'clock. We're going to have Kelly Chewbacca on talking about how her campaign is going and uh, any latest uh, news bits from her campaign. We'll hear directly from her. Until next time, I'm John Quick from somewhere in Alaska. Thank you so much.